Welcome to the Shida Kama Extractive Podcast. Today, my guest is uh, Yame Mkwe. Yame is a networking entrepreneur, twin transition broker, and a Pan-Africanist ecosystems and alliance builder. Yame has 20 years of work experience focusing on service design and management, and is now a trustee of a Botswana-based Southern African-focused public benefit entity. Africa Place and Equity Cities Foundation focusing on partnership-led projects and research practitioner implementation and stakeholder engagement. He regularly contributes to national, pan-African and global fora, communities of practice, such as the Africa Secular Economy Network, Chatham House Convened Global Secular Economy Roadmap Initiative, and the Secular Economy Coalition. Yame, welcome to the Sheila Palmer Extractive Podcast. I appreciate you joining. Thank you very much for having me and um, a warm morning, good day to your listeners. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for, for the invitation. Fantastic. I wanted to focus very much in the area of the secular economy. I mean, what is the rationale fundamentally behind the concept of the secular economy? Um, that's it's a very interesting question because we, I think it really comes about uh, and it, 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 it's really aligned to this issue of the climate emergency that we're in. But what is different about the circular economy in particular is that it's seeing that we cannot, we can no longer live in this environment where we live beyond planetary boundaries and the impact that we as the human race and people are having not only in our immediate environment, but in our communities and also on the, on the, the, the what's called, on the globe, on the world as a whole. So what the circular economy really tries to do is really try to change our relationship with materials our relationship with the environment and also tries to place us in a place where we we understand how we can actually design out waste so that now anything that you you are dealing with whether it's uh, <clears throat> materials used for your food materials used in in packaging in, in the for your 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 consumer goods anything around the vehicles and everything else that anything that you, you must understand that we can no longer live in this world where we extract, we 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 basically re refine and then we take it for production and then it ends up at the landfill. Where it's unsustainable. So it's how we actually now bring this this issue of putting people, place, and and planet at the heart of 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 the the transition or the transformation to, and this issue of living bringing us within that one point five degree C where the, the planet is warming. It's because of this, uh, this uh, unsustainable way in which we're living. And the circular economy is really based around how do we bring that human dimension of responsibility around consumption and production into, into play. Yeah, resource efficiency, if you can call it, yeah. Right. So, uh, Yami, you've said quite a lot. Um, let's see if we can unpack a, a few of those. You talk about changing our relationship with materials. Can you be more specific? What is the nature of our relationship today? Why should we change it? And what is it about today that doesn't work? And that is, to use your phrase, unsustainable. 
the thing about it, you will notice that first and foremost, we are growing in terms of not only global populations, but also even you'll find even in local communities and whatever. We're having a situation where climate change has now led us to having a new type of, of uh, category of, of demographic, which is the climate refugee, where people are leaving where they were living because of climate defects and climate change. So they're going to places where they're putting a burden on, on the communities that they're arriving in. Uh, this could be urban areas or wherever. So what you'll find is that we are now, because of climate change, we're having an environment of scarcity. But this, that scarcity is a false narrative. It's really because we are not, we, 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 we are living thinking that there's an endless supply of resources. The, the, the world as it is, is basically now being, um, being stripped of the natural, everything in nature is now being stripped for our benefit. So what is actually happening is that we are, if we continue on the path that we're on, we will find ourselves in a situation where we have nothing left in, in the environment left to, to extract and actually now um, manufacture, whether it's food for food or for in the housing, or even in terms of producing the things that we, we take for granted in our daily lives. And you'll find that the, what it makes this situation actually quite serious at this point in time is that the the growth that we're seeing in the world is actually happening in the global south. So you find places like South America, Latin America, Southeast Asia, and, and these areas around the subcontinent. I think you know now India has the largest population in the whole world. China has been there for quite some time. And you find also Africa is booming and it's about to catch up. So the, 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 the shift in terms of population is actually now in the global south. So if we continue on this path, they we if we continue uh, basically living like how maybe the global north has been doing where now the the quality of life and the things that they 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 have been enjoying for guys of that we'll find ourselves having no resources left and so it's this nature and this comes back to the your question is this issue how can we now take a more intentional or more um purposeful approach to how we 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 can actually sustain this this growth and look at growth differently and make sure that it is in in some way maybe regenerates or plows back into nature what we have taken so that therefore we can all continue to to share so it's it's really around balancing that's really where the issue lies and it's it's again coming back to what I said about putting people place and 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 planet at the heart of of the 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 transition or the transformation that we're undergoing yeah mm. so if we think about it in say practical terms um how do current if you wish economic and industrial development models differ fundamentally from those that are espoused in the secular economy approach such that we are not depleting uh, and such that we are not exacerbating the climate change and the rise in temperatures in the uh, planet Earth? Um, to, I think to put it in simple terms, it's really around this issue around what you might call um, develop at all costs. Well, basically, we are, we want to improve. We we have been measuring everything around GDP, 
we have been just basically living as if there's no consequence. So th there was no <clears throat> no understanding as to what is going to what is going to happen if we continue around the path. There's no you don't even think about that. Now, because of I think I think it's it's odd. People often say it's a good thing COVID happened. COVID was the great leveler for um, connecting people around the whole world. It showed us there's an emergency. It was a health emergency. But interestingly about COVID, it made us all wake up to actually what is happening around all of us at the, at the same time. We, we noticed for the first time when we were not, I think if you recall, when we were not moving around anywhere in the world, that you found a situation where smog had basically disappeared in, in places like Shanghai and Beijing and Mumbai and places like that. There was, uh, I think for the first time you saw animals moving freely in places like Venice, dolphins were going around. Here in Botswana, for example, apparently there was wildlife roaming near cities, urban areas, which showed you what kind of nature was reclaiming. Uh, this, uh, this, it was coming back into balance just simply by virtue of that whole, six, I think it was six, eight months where people were not moving around. We showed you, I saw Lape and you saw that um, we, we were, we, the, the, there was actually a study done by NASA where even, even the ozone layer to a certain extent was actually now starting to repair. They were actually seeing different changes and they could actually see from space. It was clear, they could actually see the sky from space just by virtue of the fact that there was no production. So all this extreme weather phenomenon, all these heat and temperatures, all these issues around you find oceans and what was happening with them. Now it really now brought us to the realization that we are the cause for of all of this. And it really, I think you, I think were scientists who, climate scientists in particular, came to the fore and said, you see, with this is what we've been saying all along. And these questions around where was the human involvement, where was the human responsibility or accountability for all that has been happening. And that's where the link came. And th then it started asking the question, but what needs to change? And then you found that by and large, uh, this is where questions around, if we continue around the current path, what what would what would be the consequence and then obviously what 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 is it that we perhaps can do at a very you might call it a granular or a local level to start and this is where i think issues around ecological soundness regeneration i know that people are talking even uh, nature-based solutions but critically it's around this issue around the human dimension and this is what makes the circular economy quite different because it's actually asking the question, where are people's relationship with these materials? Where is people's relationship with the, the choices that they make around consumption and, and production? And what needs to, what are their choices around what they buy and what they, what, how they will actually treat the, 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 do they need to buy this, these clothes every year? Do they need to be eating this, this, this food, which is packaged in a certain way? Do they need to be uh, driving the same car or buy a new phone? Because obviously, if you if you now are buying a new phone every year, that that phone comes from from materials which have to be mined. Then they have to be produced. Now, we're constantly e-waste. Funny enough, is one of the single largest areas of of, of uh, what's called growth in terms of landfill landfill waste material. Anyway. Because we don't, we, it's 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 made out of not only materials that have to be mined, but also very hazardous uh, uh, plastics and other other chemicals. Which, when they are put in the landfill, they become basically they make that area 
polluted and they can actually go into the, the groundwater and also the soil. So it makes it very hard to remediate soils and everything like that. So these questions around our relationship, this is where the issue of relationship, do you really need that new phone or can the phone be designed differently so that it can stay in use or be, be reused in different ways? And you'll find that this is the same with the, with the vehicles now. Yes, we have EVs, but do you really need EVs because it keeps vehicles on the road it doesn't actually transition towards maybe things like um, walking more, cycling, um, and also using the same car. But that car, if you are using it, can it be more environmentally uh, sound than it has been? So I know I've said a lot, but it's really just bringing that to practical examples of, of, of where the interlink from the global perspective right down to the local and the, the, that's called the, the individual, uh, yeah. You know, mm, no, you've said a lot, but you've, you've also said a lot of very important things. There are two things that I, I think you said that are really worth pausing and, and, and letting uh, them think. The first is that most people that I have seen who advocate for behavioral change are asking multinational companies and oil producers and mining companies to change. But in effect, what you're saying is, yes, there must be a change in terms of the how we extract the rate, but there must also be a change in your own behavior at what you call granular level. Your choices of what you buy, your choices of how much you buy, your choices of the things you surround yourself with can be either part of the problem or the solution. I think a lot of people don't understand that we drive demand. These companies don't just mine, it's because there are people that are going to consume. The second thing that I think is really very important that you say is that we need to question the wisdom that EVs clean the environment. Actually, there's an even better solution. Let's just walk more. Let's cycle more. Nobody's thinking about that. They're thinking about, let's keep the cars on the road. But if we keep the cars on the road, what you're saying is we're going to need more material. Yes. We're going to have more waste. So in effect, uh, we are not necessarily solving the problem because we are not going to the root cause, which to your point is the relationship between humans and materials. We need to change it. Have I captured that correctly? You've hit it. You've hit the nail on the head. Yeah, that's essentially it. It's happening at two levels. Yes, multinationals. You you can talk policy all you want, but it's really about what does that actually look like. And you can talk about standards and and you know enforcement and all these things. But really, at the end of the day, it's actually a demand from just not only individuals but uh, local communities. And if they change their buying patterns. You find that even the likes of what's called huge multinationals like Unilever, the likes of the Ikea's of this world, they actually start to note how how the demand from the actual individuals and even um, even demographics, youth or women, they notice these things and they actually are now using that demand as a reason for how they can actually now start to redesign and relook at not only their entire processes, but also even in terms of their operations and the materials that they use. And the, the, it's not just the materials, it's how they design those materials, the packaging that they they use, how do they just what goes into their product? How do they relate to even the the raw materials that come in? 
are they actually going down to where, let's say, for example, the farming communities who bring the 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 the, the inputs into their their products? How are they having a relationship there as well to actually now make sure that when they are saying we are truly making an impact to either on our carbon footprint or even econ what's called uh, rural and and uh, what's called uh, food system regeneration, they are actually now living though that that reality. And they're actually helping even those communities where they're sourcing from to even transform. So they, they actually not even we here, for example, in Botswana, we talk about uh, social responsibility and community impact. But what they're doing is actually plowing good back into those communities so that there's even now community resilience, there's even now regeneration and the, the quality of life and the livelihoods are even proved improving as a result of that plowing back into those good and now the, those health benefits they, there's this word i learned this year co-benefits the quality of life around health and all these things start to change which again now comes back to your second point which is this issue of making different choices i mean if you we designed our urban areas a bit differently I, we, we we interestingly we we have this asphalt jungle where there's more roads being built, more bridges being built. You find that there's there's um, there's concrete everywhere, but there's no trees, there's no parks, the there's no playgrounds for children to actually play in, and even even there's no urban farming, for example, where and even when you're dealing in nutrition, for example, why are you not planting fruit trees everywhere so that they're basically if you're just walking. You can actually grab an apple or a, a lemon. This will offset colds. This will even improve people's uh, health just in time. If there's a park bench underneath a tree, you you actually now can actually walk. If, if you walk to the bus station, yes. But obviously now, if you're not driving a car, you're walking to it. So actually that bus, which is now maybe uh, coming fueled by uh, environmentally sound fuel, can actually, now it's one bus, not opposed to, let's say, 20 cars on the road. So now, incidentally, you are walking, you're getting to a bus which takes more people, but interestingly now, it's it's actually now uh, taking, having a lower footprint in terms of the, the, the vehicular traffic, and that removes uh, these particulates out of the air. Interesting then, even now, even because everything's moving closer, communities now are actually coming closer, which I think has this mental health and just just basically just how people feel and in their community and that quality of life now starts to to go up and notch and you it starts to impact everything individual communities even neighborhoods and it will actually start to impact even the economic uh, um, uh, what's called the economic environment in 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 country so it's your choices which are actually transforming all of these things and it it before you even start to policy, before you even start to talk about uh, things like uh, standards and everything like that, and what you're demanding of multinationals, it's actually our our choices and what we're demanding through our choices, which is actually bringing about the change in 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 the environment around us. And if we all do this, you it people, you know, you, like you said, the those who are actually producing for us and seeing how they can tap in and. Uh, remain relevant in the market. They they actually see these shifts, these signal shifts, and they they move accordingly. And they the it's those who take that up who are now, if you notice, they're the leaders right now because they 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 are actually repositioning in this new environment. Eh? Mm, you you are right. We underestimate the power of the public choice in driving not only decisions by industrialists, 
but also decisions by policymakers because policymakers where industrialists live off people purchasing and they making profits. The policy space led by politicians thrives on people making choices through the ballot. And so the, the, the politicians must align with the wishes of people. But first, the people must express that wish and be emphatic through their choices, which brings me to a question of public education. You and I are talking about this. How, 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 how much awareness is there? And, and uh, how, what can we do to help people understand that they can change the world with their choices much faster than holding placards? I sense there is a kind of knowledge gap and that you can't advocate in a vacuum. You have to have some fundamental understanding. How can we tackle that? Um, I will take the example of here in Botswana because I, this is where I'm and what we do here. Um, essentially, you find that you're right. This thing of holding placards and shouting at, at rallies, it's, it really is... For me, I find it counterproductive. It's, it's almost like a sensationalism in, in a way. Um, one of the ways that through my work in basically local, regional and, and global uh, communities of practice, what we've noticed is that it's really around um, technical capacitation. What I mean by technical capacitation is that those who have the influence where you find organized, if it's school teachers, how do you, it's not about curriculum, so that it's, it's a knowledge, it's a, it's a skills and teaching. We love that word of teach them. No, that's not what it is. It's like, it, it's how, if there's a better understanding, just at a, you find the interesting, at an early childhood development level, before you even get to universities, just early childhood development, so that, because you know young children, especially the very young, the six-year-olds to 10, they are very smart. They are very. They question. They have no filter at all. They will tell you off. Children very young. They have no filter. So if you empower them to be more insightful, just by the way you you tackle or tap in into their natural curiosity and creativity through the teaching method and and showing them. But this is what it looks like. You got to give them examples, and you have got to allow their creativity to actually uh, run free. Basically, this could be in their art class it could be just projects where you ask them to do something at home and uh, create something which so because they see some they, they young children have phones so they go onto their phones and they actually see something on either youtube or something and if you ask them to actually create an art project or write an essay they will come up they'll come back with very interesting uh very interesting points of view but now you come in that's more around tackling education through project based hand 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 through things that they do with their hands and use their minds. When you find here in, in actually even influencing the public, it's really around how we actually engage in terms of not just one industry having a, a talk. It can't be the built environment, for example, or in the mining or in financial services where there's a workshop. Because then it, what you tend to find is that it's um, people in a group, people of this particular church, talking to the same congregation and they will obviously nod their heads and say yes this is actually right you are one of the same but the moment you all see each other in the same situation because it's now multi-stakeholder across state and you're talking to the issues you have to talk to the issues what is it so when you capacitate them in terms of showing them what best practice is but understanding of concepts you bring the concept and you actually now say show what 
what examples of case studies or what people are doing elsewhere, but then ask the question, but what could this look like in yours? And you challenge them. A lot of times we, I remember in early 90s, early 2000s, people run a workshop or a, a certification course and you'll find somebody will be taken to a workshop. He'll get a, he or she will get a certificate and they'll come back to work and say, hey, look, I went to the workshop. Now I, I'm certified in this. But is it ever applied? You'll find by and large, no. Where, what is different about the environment now that we're in, you challenge this, this, um, these industries to actually say, but if you change, here are the benefits. Here is the benefit. And you, you actually are creating almost a design challenge or you actually now using the opportunity of, of a project which they can actually benefit from, which is now reducing the risk. You're actually saying, here's an opportunity to redesign this or take advantage of this design challenge or this opportunity. But we're asking you that to try, try it in different ways. So they have to reformulate and quickly form teams. And it's that experiential learning, learning by doing, where they have to now challenge in a sort of like a sandboxing environment to actually now come up with something new. It sparks curiosity, just like with the children example I gave earlier. It sparks curiosity. It sparks a different, you know, a different way of um, interrelating as teams. It actually now brings up new questions because they, some dissonance comes across during the experience and they realize they start to see the gap between what they've been doing and what this new environment will demand and the way they're going to need to work in the new ways. And this is where now it brings that knowledge in it. But interestingly, it's when they go out to communicate out there. That's where the difference will lie. Because when they now go out into the community and start to talk, it now starts to re resonate with the wider environment around them. And these are, again, coming back to this issue of community. When they start to talk this language with the environment and the communities around them, they are now basically evangelists or they are now ambassadors of this new uh, this new changes in transformation and they are talking because they have been putting it into practice so it's it makes it easier to say but it's more showing examples like because we did this as you can see this is what it looks like and more importantly this is what it will look like for you as communities if you are part and parcel as well of this change and when they go around sharing with you from this lived reality kind of position uh, this is where now this this uptake and this buy-in from from the wider community because they will start to hear it also they will say oh that that's a good point funny enough i heard this somewhere else and i've been noticing this word or this this uh, this 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 uh, new topic cropping up and I'm also curious about it. And it sparks that, that engagement uh, from a community. And this is where now, obviously, communities now and people now, when they now start to raise their voice because they've seen it somewhere else. And this is where I think uh, there's this, uh, what do they call it? This, uh, uh, this, what this, this sweeping this this tidal wave of of new thinking and 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 then galvanizing of the community comes comes from yeah yeah so so a, a groundswell and a critical ground to that's the word yeah thank you yeah of behavior yeah, yeah. I, I think i think you are right mm, early learning i think because there we plant the seed we we really raise a human being of the future we have to break the chain uh, and create a new uh, member of the global population. And the way to do is to start to inculcate a particular way of thinking 
about the choices we make and how we interact with material right from the early age and not allow people to grow and then try to reinvent them. I think that's very important. I think also the idea of a value proposition, and, and by that I mean making communities see the benefit to them of change, that this is not about us telling you to do something for us, but telling you and advising you to understand concepts and issues and use that to make the choices and see how impactful in a positive way that is to your life uh, and, and, and everybody else. So let me ask you one last uh, brief question. So we, 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 you started off by talking about the, the planetary uh, relationships. Um, you talked about COVID and what we learned about just that brief pause, because there, a, a health pandemic forced the world to pause, something we ourselves had failed to do. And of course, as soon as COVID stopped, bang, we went back again. Uh, so that suggests that in the space of the secular economy and in the space in which we want to change the way we relate to materials, we can't really localize. This has to be a global thing. Is, is it possible, for instance, for Africa to be clean when Europe is not and vice versa? Um, interestingly, no, it can't. It can't happen that way. You're right about the pause. We're we're in full flow. Obviously, we're seeing now um, the situation with the people are talking geopolitics. There's wars on two two continents now, three continents. Funny enough, uh, Africa, Europe, and also now we're seeing it near the Middle East. Wars are, are, are there's geopolitical issues. There's now even. Um, situations where there's a legislative change where governments will actually say no no more exporting we are now going to now value value add here and this is happening with materials which are so important to the way which the the whole world functions whether it's phones whether it's satellites whether it's cars everything this could be lithium they're talking uranium you're talking precious earth metals they're in very specific locations and now superpowers are fighting for the rights to to those materials and securing they talk about security but they're securing the supply chains around that as well and they they're now forming relations around and interestingly what you find is that it's the global south and here we're talking about places like south america latin america and sub-saharan africa as a whole they this is where now there's this land grab you know there's this very serious land grab and we're not seeing the implication of what will that mean for us in future because we did not secure in our own way our our uh, security and our you know supply chains to the opportunities that will come in the future so the, the the future economy is being framed now it's actually live it's being framed live right now so in terms of now coming to your question in terms of is it possible for let's say a global north global south for no it, it's they can't happen whereby there's a disconnect but the the implication for both are different in the global north what you're seeing more and more they we know that this is where the emission sources are coming from so they have they know very well that this they are responsible for the emissions and the situation that we find us so that's why you find that the the huge um, narrative in the global north is around energy and uh, you know uh, emissions reduction 
here in the CO2 and all that, here in the global south, because we are now having to transform, because we've been predominantly around a narrative of poverty, or around exclusion, inequality, and also, more importantly, being disconnected from, from the, 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 what's called the, the global economy. But we, this is where the resources are. But interestingly, this is where the impacts of climate change are, are being felt. So it's our economic transformation, the changes in our societies are now being gravely being impacted by the impacts of the, 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 the climate emergency. We are now, even now our economies are trans. So ours is, our relationship with the circular economy is a bit different because now we are dealing with climate adaptation, resilience, but now our, the, 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 the nuance or the, 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 the picture of our transformation is a bit different. Is that We have to be more responsible and accountable around the choices we make. So that even as we transform, or as we change, we need to, I think in a sense, remain true to our values and our cultures, which are, you find by and large more indigenous, Ours are more uh, more inclusive. They they predominantly been inclusive, but something shifted somewhere, and that's why you find that we are coming back home to our own identities. And you find that our own relationship with the land is now come sparking because of uh, because of this this emergency. And and because of these this we're doing a pushback a bit differently. Is that we are now saying this is actually tied to our cultures. And this this issue of culture now is now because obviously you find that in the global south and where I'm saying this is that in in Asian countries in in uh, Middle East in sub-Saharan Africa and also we've got booming youth populations booming youth population and a lot of the the youth one enough has this other underlying narrative which is the gender lens you find that by and large out of the even young people there's a greater population who are young young girls young women. And with this issue of gender inclusion, that's why it's it's coming out very pronounced because it, the, the women have predominantly borne the brunt of of uh, everything that we've seen, whether it's around what carrying water, uh, it's around the issues of around feeding, uh, cooking at home, and all these things. So you find that if you take care of the girl child, inform her, and also empower her, and empowerment is not just the education, but also empower in terms of her own choices and her understanding of the what where her place is and speaking up, being able to speak up for what you believe is that now when it's coming to these the issues that are culture, indigenous, and also these these cho choices, you find that now even the the vibrancy around this issue of what this identity of circular economy is. Remember the choices and relationship and living. When that is now more vibrant, it, it's actually now, this is where I, we talk about case studies and best practice. It's You find by and large, when you're having a lot of these conversations and your people are being flown to these international conferences, you find that it's actually young, young women who are very well, who have been educated, but who have actually lived in these communities who are now coming... They may have been a masters, but they work in these communities and they're trying to help them actually have a different relationship. And they're the ones actually, when they speak up, they're actually speaking up on behalf of these communities who may or may not have been able to go to these international conferences and these summits when they speak up to why this legislation and this global compacts must be written and whatever. They are giving the authentic narrative of those communities that they're coming. They're the ambassadors of these communities. And this is this is what you're seeing more and more in these in these global fora, these these uh, these platforms and whatever. And and 
interesting there's one particular demographic which i have not spoken about which is absolutely in, in important in this sense you find that it's it's really around these marginalized and what i mean by marginalized you find it's the poor the informal uh destitutes people who have been who have grown up in rural very endemic poverty environments these are people who i think you're seeing with these issues of leave no one behind these are the people who have no voice and i remember i, I spoke about children in particular you have to safeguard for the future generation so all these people they have their own different needs and they will have their own different viewpoints. And But their, their rights, and this is why this issue of rights, human rights, is actually quite essential to this issue of a secular transition. We have This could be a whole podcast, mind you, on its own, but the reality is that's where, uh, this is where the groundswell is right now. And you, you cannot leave this, this issue of justice out of this comment. You cannot, because all these people are being impacted, but you are future-proofing. Uh, the realities that they will find themselves and when they are being brought through this pro this process and they are being included they're being empowered and they're they're participating in this new prosperity this new picture of this what the new economy looks like it, we're talking not gdp we're talking well-being and you know all these 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 issues they are at the heart of all of this and funny enough the the picture is 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 has them at the forefront in and in, in a lot of these localities when we're talking about this transition to to a circular economy eh? and how it links funny enough how it links to these other climate narratives whether whether it's um you know mitigation adaptation biodiversity conservation and and have you hey eh? thank you it's fantastic i i like the notion that it's not about gdp it's about well-being this is the, one of the fundamental challenges of the economic systems. Even the concepts are a bit flawed and they are a bit removed. They are aggregated statistics that have no bearing on impact. Countries are deemed wealthy, and yet there's a lot of poverty. And, and, and this disconnect, I think, is one of the major failings of the construct of our economies today. But look, as you rightly said, we could have several other podcasts. Let's leave it at that for now. And thank you very much for joining the Shilakham Extractive Podcast.